This is a lecture given in 523 Butler Library on Wednesday, the 16th of April, 1980, by Carolyn Horton. I'm going to do what I usually do. I've written out the first few paragraphs, and then I'll, I won't be reading the notes, but I've had to get, in order to get started. The interesting thing was that uh, the first time I knew the title of this talk was when I read it in print, and what I was supposed to talk about. I think... If, I asked several other people said the same thing, but I think it's very good for a person. It makes them think, don't you think so, Terry? So this talk, entitled um, Academic and Research Libraries and Book Conservatories, I spent a lot of time thinking about what the title meant. And the, the first thing, of course, is what is an academic and research library? From the viewpoint of a conservator, it is a library in which everything on the shelves is important forever. No artifact ever becomes obsolete. Certain artifacts may have to be microfilmed or otherwise copied in order to permit use, but in most instances, the original may not be discarded, but must be preserved at all costs. This place is a great, place is a great burden on the librarian. He must try to establish prior, priorities. Where does he start? Does he start correcting the causes of disintegration? installing proper atmospheric controls? Does he start a program of preventive care to stop the deterioration of materials by treating leather bindings with buffer salts and oils, by deacidifying paper and so forth? Or does he start by arranging for the complete restoration of the most valuable materials, concentrating on the basket cases? Now, what is a book conservator? By definition, he is someone who conserves books. In planning a program for the preservation of a library, where does he start? Usually, he starts where he's told to start. But sooner, rather than later, he ought to become the consultant on the preservation of the total collection. He should be paid to keep the books and manuscripts in good health, as well as to restore them when they are falling to pieces. How do book conservators know what to do to preserve the books? It is an astonishing fact that at the present time there is no school or formal training program for book conservators. I have been able to find uh, 14 college and research libraries which have preservation officers or binder conservators, um, although there may be more, but uh, there is no way place for them to have studied what they're supposed to do. There are three training programs connected with universities which train conservators of works of art, including works of art on paper. One is in New York City, connected with New York University, one in Cooperstown, connected with the State University of New York, and one at Wintertour, connected with the University of Delaware. However, beginning in the fall of 1981, Paul Banks will be directing a program for the training of library conservators and book conservators. This will be sponsored by, I believe, is, is it only Columbia University, Terry, or is it jointly with, joint with NYU? Um, within the next five years, the picture should change for the better. Meanwhile, I would like to review for you from the viewpoint of my own life experience uh, how the field has developed to the point at which it now is. I had a, an opportunity to focus on it because I was asked to give the the banquet speech last year at the American Institute of Conservation annual meetings, 
and the title that was assigned to me there was uh, 50 Years of Conservation. And I was able to report on it from my own personal experience, uh, because that was about how long it had been since I first started studying. So I started studying handbook binding in Vienna in 1929 and 1930, and was very interested in it as an art form. Uh, but, and when I came back to the United States from Vienna to Philadelphia, I found uh, that there was a very fine binder and restorer named Albert Oldak, in uh, still with a wonderful old-fashioned European shop, and I managed eventually to persuade him that uh, he would permit me to work for him for nothing because I was very anxious to learn. I considered myself the most honored person and I was, because he was a wonderful man and quite a good restorer of uh, particularly old manuscripts and books, as well as a fine binder. Um, but the more I worked in this place, the more I became convinced that the, we were working from the wrong end, that uh, the things that came into his shop were poor basket cases, and that what we should be doing is try to find out what was making them disintegrate and find out how to prevent this deterioration. So right at that point, I decided to make that my, my life work. Um, to do what I, a little bit I could do to figure out answers without much enough help uh, from this, the academic world, without any help, really. Um, but what I did was to go in the evenings to the University of Pennsylvania Library, where they, they did have a great collection of uh, books about books, and I read every book and every footnote about anything that had been done in the past about uh, causes of decay, how to prevent decay, what were the proper storage conditions for books, and so forth. Um, most of the literature was, uh, the, the, the spirit in which it was written was one of deploring, and there were very few constructive uh, suggestions or answers to the situation that prevailed, um, they had an inkling of the fact in those days that, that the atmospheric pollution must have something to do with the decay, but they had no other way of controlling it. Um, and they had not even dreamed of the fact that acid in the paper, they suspected it might be bad, but any way of deacidifying the paper had not yet been developed or even thought of. Um, Leidenberg and Archer wrote a book called The Care and Repair of Books, and that came out in the first edition in 1931. And it was, uh, it had an interesting bibliography which was arranged chronologically, uh, causes of decay, methods of preserving, and so forth. They were aware of damage from the pollutions in the air, and there's a quote from that book. Theoretically, it is possible to care for such situations as damage from impure air by conditioning the air. But this is a council of perfection, possible only for buildings with ample mechanical equipment attended by intelligent and, <laughs> intelligent and sympathetic and competent engineers. Uh, even then, it is largely a question as to the success of the equipment. For the small householder, the only refuge from impure air seems change of residence. <laughs> Community control of sewage disposal has progressed farther than control of atmospheric pollution. 
uh, it was this is the first time that I read, by the way, a count in this book of, of the thymol chamber being used to treat uh, the effects of too high humidity, that is, mold in paper and on leather. Uh, something that is still in use in practically every museum and conservation center than placing the moldy material in the thymol chamber for two weeks to kill the mold. Though now they have decided that thymol is very toxic. So uh, that's another dimension. And have other chemicals. Well, in the 1931 on, after I read this Leidenberg and Archer, and I realized that they were New York Public Library people, I made a practice of coming up to Philadelphia, from Philadelphia to New York as often as I could. And in those days, uh, people were still working on Saturday morning, and I could work Monday till Friday and get up Saturday morning and to the library and find that Mr. Archer was there. And he was a, a man of very great intelligence and way ahead of his time. And he was very interested in trying to do everything he could to advance the field. He was, uh, his idea was that before he would allow any material to be used on the restoration of the books, he was in charge of, I suppose he was really a library conservator. He was over the head of the bindery and he was in charge of the health of the books in the library. Uh, one of the few places that had such a position. Uh, he would get samples of materials and if they were about to use something and send a selection of them to the Bureau of Standards and uh, get their advice from their tests that were available at that time as to which were the safest, what was the best material to use. And then he, when I would come up, he would tell me in great secrecy. And the reason that it was a secret, it's really a scandal, is that there had been a case I had not experienced it personally, just about five years before I became interested in the field, in which the, the Bureau of Standards tested batteries, and they came out with a recommendation as to which was the best and longest lasting battery, and gave the brand name. And a lawsuit developed, and the Bureau of Standards was, the fear of God was put into them by the higher-ups, uh, that uh, they was all right for them to test, but not to let anybody know which was the best because there might, it might cause trouble. And to this day, you'll have a hard time getting information out of a Bureau of Standards with a specific brand name. Um, but Mr. Archer divulged this secrets, and I appreciated it very much. Um, the next thing that I did was to make it a practice of visiting libraries wherever, whenever I got near one, and, and uh, find out what was going on, what their problems were, just out for my education. And the thing that I found, as I, wherever I went, the only, there was no conservation program. The most that I would find would be the Demco Bond and the Gaylord book mending people had been there. These were two commercial firms that sold book mending materials. They would come in and with a bottles of rubber cement Scotch tape and uh, gum, well, wasn't, it was not a self-adhesive cloth, it was a wettable cloth, but they would give lessons, and really lessons in how to destroy the books. And I think there's, I don't know whether they're still doing that in libraries today, or they are, somebody's shaking their head. It was a, a 
we still get in, my, in our shop books that have been really very much damaged. The worst one was the double stitch binder to protect a pamphlet, and you glue this heavy cloth right onto the title page of the pamphlet. And it got worse, of course, when they started using self-adhesive tapes. Um, the question about leather came in. In 1932, there was a, there'd been a lot of talk about treating leather with Vaseline and things like that. The British Museum finally did a, a comparable, did some research and came up with their dressing, which was one that is, is still used by some people. It's a dressing that has um, very good ingredients in it up to a point. It has lanolin, neat squidor, no, beeswax, and um, it has hexane, a solvent, and a paranitrate, no, it's a hexane, a solvent, the solvent hexane, that's it. And the solvent, of course, is, it wasn't realized in those days. Uh, solvents were really bad for you. It wasn't good for you to go around putting your hands in solvents. It could be absorbed through the skin, and certainly you could breathe in the fumes, uh, and it would be bad for you. Uh, people used routinely to do their own dry cleaning right in the kitchen. They get a gallon of solvent by carbon tetrachloride and do their own dry cleaning. And carbon tetrachloride is one of the most lethal solvents that there is now. It's absolutely forbidden to be used in most laboratories. Well, the British Museum leather dressing made the books look nice. They would likely be a little gummy from this beeswax, but um, that was what was in use. There was no thought of any other treatment for preserving leather bindings uh, at that point. In 1934, I had an opportunity to travel across the country to the West Coast, and I made appointments all along the way, stopped off, uh, <clears throat> visited libraries, and, and uh, anybody who was doing anything in the way of preserving library materials. The, when I visited the private Binders, I found that there was still the old tradition of trade secrets and suspicion that they uh, didn't want to. I, I, I meant it to say, by the way, well, that I had actually been to a formal school, but that they didn't teach any restoration there. But in here, that was in Vienna. But here, in uh, the, the, yeah, the binders who were here in this country mostly had come from Europe, and there was the tradition of trade secrets uh, that was very strong and planted in the whole field. And so that you couldn't get anything out of them, the, what they were using, what the formula was, or what, or why they were using it. You couldn't get, even get that out of them. But the, uh, some, in some of the libraries, the people who were struggling along down the basement were very generous, but they, they didn't have much to share. There wasn't much that anybody knew. But um, the, the big thing was that there was a need that had to be met, and I knew that someday there was going to be some help somewhere. I was not equipped with enough scientific background to be the person, but there'd be somebody who'd come along. Uh, meanwhile, I would continue working in the Philadelphia area. Um, I did a great deal of work at the College of Physicians on their medical infinobulum and the Academy of Sciences of the University of Pennsylvania, chiefly though at the, the American Philosophical Society, where I think I may have been the first library conservatory in the country 
uh, I was announced as such at one of the meetings that was held at the American Philosophical Society by the head of the, the APS. He stood up. I was sitting in the audience, and Wilman Spawn has been the conservator there for many years after I left. And the, the librarian said, uh, we have the honor of having the first library conservator in the country in the audience. And I looked around to see who it was. <laughs> And he said my name, so that's what he thought anyway. I didn't know any others. But I worked at the American Philosophical Society 25 hours a week and then at these other libraries until uh, 1939, from 1934 to 39. And I hope I didn't do much harm. If I didn't know what I was doing, I tried not to do anything but to write, put it aside and write up a never saying that it would be something. In 1939, my husband was offered a job at Yale, and we, I couldn't afford to go unless they, uh, we had, I had a job at Yale, so I took a trip up. Mr. Nolenberg and Mr. Babb was, had just been in charge, and they had just finished building the Sterling Memorial Library. The Beinecke hadn't even been thought of, but uh, they were aware of the fact that they needed help, and when I said that my husband was coming up for four years of graduate school, and if I could have a job that we would, that he was hoping to come, we would be able to come. He said, well, Mr. Babb is interviewing me. He'd send the, the head of the rare book one down to Philadelphia to see my work. So that was quite an event. We traveled by taxi from library to library and looked at the things I'd done. And then she went back. And here's, uh, one day we were reading the New York Times, and there was an article in it suddenly. Yale hires book. Oh. <laughs> and the publicity department had gotten it out before the, the letter had reached me in the mail, but that's what happened. So it was a really <laughs> Four years that we had, they built me a workshop and we moved up there. And um, that was a, well, that's a far I am. I seem to be back here in 1934 for a minute on this car where I would just point out that I had my first experience, well, before I left for the Yale, with a fire, and a, a library that was in a fire, and the library fell into the basement, and the, the whole house was level, and just a cellar hole, steaming, and the man whose house it was was an English professor, and he uh, said that I went to visit him in the hospital. He'd been affected by the fire and exposure with bitter cold weather, he said when he recovered, he wondered if I would try to help him uh, save the 100 books that he had used in his teaching. He had all his lifetime notes and the margins of those books, and if he could find those and I could save them, that would mean everything to him. When he got better, we went and dug the books out of the basement, and they were charred all around the edges. They were, had been completely soaked with water. We took them, put them in the back of my car, and I took them out to my country house. Uh, they smelled terrible as they started to defrost, so I thought it'd be best to put them out on the porch, on the upper porch, covered, and bring them in one at a time. Well, the weather, it had thawed for a little, but it became, got cold again, and then suddenly I had an idea. Why not keep them frozen? I was really afraid of mold. Keep them frozen out there, bring them in one at a time, and rather than take the chance of getting them, letting them mold. 
worked absolutely perfectly. I wrote them in one at a time, and I, I managed to save absolutely every book. The edges were burned, and they were in single leaves. I made a box for each one, washed the paper, and, and uh, he, the professor, was able to continue his teaching. But then decided that that was really something that should be shared. So eventually I wrote an article on the subject, uh, what to do if, the, if you have a fire and books or wet, anything that's wet, is to keep it as cold as possible and preferably freeze it. And this, of course, is now being used. It's an obvious solution, and, and, but it's very successful. And the first publication that came out that seemed to me that uh, had anything to do with a scientific approach to the subject of conservation and restoration was in 1935 when the Fog Museum published their technical studies in the fine arts. And that ran as a, as a periodic, a quarterly, from 1935 to 1943. And in it, they, they laid down, uh, applied the scientific method to art materials chiefly. They did cover uh, some aspects of paper, and that was a thrilling uh, experience. And so, of course, immediately I went up to the fog and tried to get to know those people, and whom I, many of whom are still active in the field, and uh, Sheldon Keck, for instance, whom some of you may have met when he was here in New York, especially. Um, in 1937, the first, uh, was the man who had been in charge of the uh, British Museum Laboratory. They were really pioneers in the uh, scientific approach to library materials and uh, art paper and so forth. He published a book called The Conservation of Prints, Drawings, and Manuscripts. And in this, he described the final chamber in a practical way that could be used by anybody. Uh, and he talked about air conditioning as vital to the preservation of materials. Certain other technical things that he was off on, such as a wonderful new bleach that could be used on paper that didn't be, need to be washed out, chloramine tea, which is now considered even uh, not good for paper even if you do wash it out. That was only in 1937. Also in 37 came a landmark book that a lot of you may have seen. I treasure my copy. Julius Grant, Books and Documents, Dating, Permanence, and Preservation. Uh, in this book, Grant saw air conditioning as the answer to remove impurities from the air as well as control the temperature for the preservation of collections as the major thing that could be done. In 1943, um, another little book came out that has just been reprinted. Uh, these books are so far, they're so sparse and far between any help for anybody who was in the field. And still there are not, there's not very much. Um, Adelaide Emily Minogue's pamphlet, and she worked, she was a student at Swarthmore who went down to Got, had a very good chemistry background and went down to work at the Bureau of Standard of a, no, the National Archives. And as a result of the war, 
even though she was a woman, she was allowed to become eventually head of the department there at the National Archives. Uh, all the men had gone off to the circuit with the armed forces. And she became quite important in the field. She wrote a very kind pamphlet, Repair and Preservation of Records. She, again, emphasized that uh, air conditioning uh, was the answer and that it should be continued 24 hours a day and that close monitoring was vital. Uh, I went down to visit her and had a, was absolutely thrilled with what I was seeing. She believed that your monitoring sh should be so close that she had somebody monitoring it every hour on the hour, going around with a bowl, swinging and taking the relative temperature and humidity. And she was right. I mean, there's still nothing. That's about the best you can do uh, as far as we know today. In uh, 1947, between the years 47 and 58, as far as my own personal history goes, we went to Chicago, where my husband was at the university, and I had the opportunity not only to work on many collections there and teach, also to teach there, which is the way of learning. Uh, I was the first person to teach in Chicago for a period of like something like eight years. There hadn't been anybody in the whole city, so that I had crowds of people, but that's a way to get friends, too, people who are interested in the same thing you're interested in. But I also met Harold Tribolet, who was away ahead of his time in those days, and he was head of the restoration department of the Lakeside Press, <coughs> and he was very generous with uh, what would have been, re were really considered trade secrets by his company, but he did share it with his colleagues in a very generous manner, and again, he knew him. He's still alive, but he's retired now. Will agree. Now, in 1948, let's see, I went to Chicago in 48. the International Institute for Conservation was founded. Now, that you can see how late uh, all these things developed as against any other field like medicine or uh, you think it'd just be common sense that there would be an organization for the conservation of materials. Well, they are the International Institute for Conservation, which, of course, was angled toward art and archives, and it did include paper, but not books. But their publications are very valuable, and they're still in existence today. And in a 19, let's see, when the AIC was 1958, 10 years later, our American group was formed. And that is the, the body that has annual meetings, funded publications, and is very deeply concerned with the conservation of materials. That one of the people who contributed the most to the field, probably in most ways, in some ways, was William J. Barrow. His laboratory, uh, the research there, pointed the way toward the answer to acidity in paper. The deacidification of paper, the first was the two-step um, aqueous method. The book had to be taken apart and each leaf immersed first in one solution and then, and then another, and, and the air dried. He was not a binder, and in one of his pamphlets you'll read, it's a simple matter to take the book apart and do this and then re-sew and rebind it. He, the, he had never done it, so. And I had to talk with him once on the phone about several things, and I said, uh, well, in those days we were actually sending some things for his type of lamination, which we don't use anymore 
where he actually melted cellulose acetate into the paper uh, to support it with tissue. And uh, I said, we'd like to have it done in a signature form. Well, what's that? And I said, well, we'd like to have it in octavo. Well, he wanted me to explain. I said, in eights. He said, in eights? I've never heard of such a thing. We always do it in tens. <laughs> so he didn't know uh, the structure of a book, in other words. But, but he did contribute greatly, except for the lamination. Um, the, which, when he says it's very easy in the book, very easy to reverse, and all you have to do is soak the whole the thing in acetone, which is possibly going to remove the printer's ink as well as the cellulose acetate, and certainly going to do a lot of other damage. Well, things begin to pick up. Uh, in 57, Plenderleaf wrote his masterpiece, which was the Bible of all conservators, the Conservation of Antiquities and Works of Art, Treatment, Repair, and Restoration. Still, it didn't include books, but it did include a great deal on paper. And here in this book, he points out that air conditioning was the answer to hold a holding operation. And uh, he included in this book Barrow's method of deacidification. Still talked about, talked about my lamination Tea, which of course we wouldn't recommend now, that introduced the, the idea of a, putting a buffer salt solution into leather to help preserve it, not just to oil the leather, but to change it chemically, to help it to protect itself from uh, the sulfur dioxide in the air. I believe recent research at the Library of Congress where, within the last year where they tried to, uh, first they questioned and they have come, the last I heard, they have come to the conclusion that it is the correct procedure. It is effective. As far as on my, on my personal career, we moved back to New York in 1958. That's 22 years ago, where I had been working in a house on 22nd Street. A number of people in the room either work there now or have worked there, so many have visited it. Now the whole house is occupied by, we live there and we have studios. Uh, the first floor where we store books, uh, do three-dimensional work, such as making boxes. And on the third floor, we do two-dimensional work, manuscripts, maps, and works of art on paper. And try to keep up with what's going on in the field get involved with libraries for a great deal of time. The most interesting job was the one to be in charge of going over every book in the Rollier Club Library. That was about the year 62 to 64, 37,000 books. And it was a wonderful experience. I was given carte blanche to organize the whole thing on a crash basis. This was Terry Benders, who was the new librarian. His uh, request. He wouldn't take the job unless they did that. The book the, the library had gone downhill to dreadful state. And I could hire the people and organize the program and set it all up just so I did it as soon as possible. It took a year and a half. And at the end of that time, I had th thought I had organized it sufficiently so that when I was asked to write a book on the subject, I, it, the book that I did write was based on 
the system I set up at the Grolier Club. The, new, the next edition, the third edition of my book will be different, but that's when you read uh, about the procedure in that book, that's what you're reading about. And the Grolier Club Library still looks pretty good, above average. So a lot of people have worked on it to improve it since I was there. Now, another few minutes, okay. the, and Just to briefly touch on the highlights of publications, which I think to library schools interesting, library students and people in the field. In 1960, uh, Biden, Bergen, Archer, the a revised edition was put out and with the help of John Alden, and they did correct some of the errors in the earlier edition. It's still, it's a very valuable book. Uh, they advocated deacidification, even without lamination. And it was the still, uh, they talked about the two-step process that was Barrow's original, but then they also were uh, presented the one-step process, which is the one that we chiefly use. They still have in the book that you can bleach with this foramen tea without rinsing it out of the paper, which is wrong. Uh, in 1962, the Kecks really inspired that Sheldon and Caroline Keck, who were the head of one of the three schools of, of conservation, the one in Cooperstown, started the, uh, the first of five seminars, a whole series of seminars at Cooperstown under the auspices of the New York Historical Association. They were called Seminars in American Culture, I don't know why. But Harold Tribble and I there for one week for a period of three years and what we did was to teach librarians and collectors uh, everything we knew up to that point about uh, the conservation of library materials. It was the first such program of its kind and it was given in, and I participated in it uh, later with Paul Banks in 62, 63, 65, 68, and 71. And then the thing that happened was that the first one in 60, 63, Harold Tribble met Paul Vance. He was a, had been my assistant. He worked with me at the Gullier Club. Uh, he had been Laura Young's assistant. And Harold Tribble was very impressed with Paul and asked me whether I thought Paul would ever consider leaving New York. I said, well, you have to ask him. And he picked up Paul as the person who they were looking for at the Newbury Library to be the conservator of that library. And in 1964, Paul moved out there, and as you know, uh, as I said at the beginning, we'll be moving finally back to New York. But he has been instrumental in training a great many people who are important in the field in the advancement of the principles of library conservation. Well, 66, of course, can't go into that in detail, but to touch on it lightly was the real turning point in the field of conservation because the thing that precipitated the progress was the fact that there was the flood in Florence and that it was such a dramatic disaster that people in the library field were sent from all over the world and met each other for the first time. <clears throat> and Peter Waters rose to the top by his own genius at that the work there in Florence and has eventually been brought over to the United States and has set up the, the greatest library conservation department and that's ever been set up at the Library of Congress. And I think we should all be very proud of that. 
it's worth a visit from anybody. And they're very welcoming down there, as far as I know. Um, the reason we owe a great deal of credit to Fraser Poole, who was hired, had just been hired before the flooding bombs, uh, to be in charge of what was called the Brittle Books Program at the library. Well, what could Fraser do? He, uh, if you look around, and the, the books were brittle and they were falling apart. But when he heard about Peter and arranged to set up the laboratory at uh, a workshop, things began to look up. And they are now uh, getting into the stage of doing, getting answers to lots of questions for us, for all the libraries. Paul Banks, in 1971, gave the first course in, the in conservation specifically designed for librarians to teach them how to take care of their own collections. Uh, you can see he's given that course again uh, a number of years. And it will not be uh, that program that he will be doing here, but it, it started with that. I mean, this will be a much uh, fuller program, obviously, that he's giving when he comes in 81. Well. There are a lot of other things here. This, oh no, this is almost the end. In 71, they had their first seminar on the scientific approach to the preservation of paper artifacts. A grant was gotten through the Guggenheim, I believe, and a group of paper conservators who were involved in the restoration of paper were invited out to Appleton. Um, the Smithsonian Institution also backed it. And I had the privilege of attending two seminars that were given, and the list of the people who attended those were, is really the list of the people who have been active in the field up, to, up until that time. It was repeated in 72. Since then, uh, work is going forward. The Library of Congress, I understand, is really doing comparative tests on all the library, uh, say, leather preservation, re-examining potassium lactate and what of the right oil to use and re-examining everything. And they're going to be giving interim reports. So the, the poor person who's hired now in the library, as library in charge of it, will be able to know what to do instead of just floundering around. I feel that uh, I've been very honored, very happy to be in the field, but very lucky. Uh, and the fact that we are now have thrown over the old tra trade secret tradition means that we are now able to learn from each other. Still in Europe, there's uh, that the battle hasn't been won. And when we were in Florence, uh, we met Germans who were washing paper with alum. First they would wash the mud out, and then they would put them in an alum bath. Water, well, alum in the water. Well, now, I think everybody in this room probably is read enough to know that alum is the villain in uh, causing paper to become acid. But these paper restorers had never heard of it. First, they wouldn't say what the chemical was. It was a secret. And finally, when they told it, and when they found out that what they were doing was just harming the paper, they literally threw down their tools and left Florence. They, and that, that was just the reason, the way trade secrets were... Um, serving to block any, any learning on anybody's part. Very dramatic one. 
they, it had been discredited more than 10 years before, and they had, had never heard of it, so, of the bad effects of their own. I think that's all I have to say at the moment. If anybody has any questions, 